keep your ears alert for what it is that he's saying and what it is that he's doing that we would receive from him this morning. Um, a couple of nights ago, I was sitting out on the step at some ungodly hour of the morning <laughs> with a restless child, and this verse just spoke to my heart, and it's awesome that, you know, we could, I feel like that's, it's come through already this morning, it says this, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Wow. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Did you know that you're God's own possession? God's own, you don't belong to your mum or your dad, your wife or your husband, you don't belong to your boss, you don't belong to your kids. You are a, a person, we are a people of God's own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. And that's what I'd like to do this morning, is to proclaim the excellencies of a God who's called us out of darkness. And he has. He's called us out of the darkness of our own thinking, the darkness of our own attitudes, our own brokenness, and into the light of the glory of his Son. So I pray that you would join with me in proclaiming the excellencies this morning. Because the excellencies of God aren't proclaimed in word. They're proclaimed as a body, this holy priesthood, this nation of people receive his word and live it out. And so that's what we're going to do, right? We're going to receive and live what it is that he's calling us into. From the beginning of time, God has always been looking for one thing. And there's a common theme that runs right from Genesis to Revelation, that God is looking for this people, this people of his own possession. And so this month we've been looking at this topic of relational connection versus religious ceremonies. So it's been one week so far. Um, and I'm going to continue on this theme, um, and this morning I'm going to talk to you about faith, and faith being the key to this relational connection um, that we're to have uh, with our Father. And the scripture that I'd like to talk from is in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 4, put your finger in it, and then turn to Hebrews 11 and put your other finger in Hebrews 11. Those will be our two key passages. <clears throat> so while you're doing that, I'd like to set the scene. So this is right back at the beginning. 
This is the very start of human history. In chapter 3, we've just had one of the most intense chapters in the Bible where God, who was walking with his people, communing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Thank you. In daily relationship with his people. And there's, like you all know, this thing that happens with Adam and Eve who eat the tree and they become what we call fallen. And so in this moment we see the consequences of this one act, this separation between God and man. It's an, it's an enormous moment that has defined the course of human history for the last 6,000 years. All of the brokenness, the hurt that we see in humanity has come from this one moment, this one act of disobedience that then has infected an entire nation, an entire world, really, people, human beings, with what we call sin, but really it was a disconnection a severing of a relationship between God and man. And so it's in this context that we see that this passage of Cain and Abel, it's the very first example, snapshot we see of mankind as they are today. And yet, in the midst of this intense moment in history, the gospel cannot help but breaking through. There's a divine life and power and light that comes in and penetrates what we know as the fall and the brokenness of mankind and a bringing to light of the divine invitation of God to gather to himself this people of his own possession. It's awesome. So, does everyone have Genesis 4 up in front of them? Let's have a read. All right, chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flocks and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Excuse me. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, 
where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me from this, uh, this day from the face of the ground and from your face I'll be hidden and I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold and the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of the Eden. An interesting passage, an intense passage, and yet one where we're about to see the gospel light break forth in a way that it never has before. So we have this story, these two brothers, who in the course of time bring an offering to the Lord One, on Cain's part, was rejected, and the other, on Abel's part, was received gratefully by the Lord. So what was it about these two offerings, one that was accepted, one that was rejected? Was Abel's offering a greater sacrifice? Did he give up more? Was he more devoted Was it a more costly offering? What was it about the sacrifice? What was it about this event that was acceptable to God as opposed to Cain's? Now, I think it could be worthwhile if we go to the back of the book and have a look at the result. Let's have a look at the last chapter. Well, let's have a look at the end and then we'll go back through and unpack together. So if you've got your finger still in Hebrews... Flick to Hebrews. Because it's about to tell us what it was that was happening in this moment. So it says this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Or let's start at verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So there we have it, the answer, the finale, that's it. That's the goal. That's the key. Here we have this gospel message. He says this, By faith, Abel offered a greater sacrifice than Cain. Let's go back. Verse 3. By faith, we understand. Stop right there. By faith, we understand. Are you a little bit hazy? A little bit unsure? of this story of Cain and Abel? Does it seem a little bit like, what is even going on in this chapter? 
When you open your Bibles, do you have that sense when you pick them up? What on earth is God talking about? Time and time again, Old Testament, what is God saying? And here we have it. By faith, we understand. It's impossible to understand anything to do with God and his word, to do with the body, to do with the gospel, to do with very life itself. It says this, by faith we understand that the worlds were created. Uh, sorry, by faith we understand that the worlds were, pre- were prepared by the word of God. Are you sitting on the edge of your seat? Because you've just been told the very purpose for creation and for life itself. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Creation, life, everything that we go to, there is absolutely no explanation for why we are walking on this earth except for by faith. So what is faith? We've heard about it probably over the last six years, time and time again, about this faith. Hebrews chapter 1 Uh, Sorry, 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Faith, this conviction, this sight that we've heard about, this perspective, this ability to see the things which were unseen, to see the things of heaven, the things of eternity, the things that were that all of life we're moving towards. It's that sight, the sight of the end goal, the sight of the bride, the sight of the eternal kingdom, the sight of this eternal relationship that God has for us as his people. It's that sight. It's only through the lens of this faith, this sight, that we understand why we're here, that we understand what it was that was going, in, going on in this passage, that we would understand why Christ had to come, that we would understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything in between. It's this perspective, it's this lens that governs absolutely everything in life and in God. Isn't that massive? It's enormous. By faith, we understand. By this ability to see the things that are unseen. It talks about Noah, and it said that God spoke to him about unseen things, and he built an ark for the salvation of his household. It talks about Abraham, who saw the city in the future and was moving towards it by faith. What is it that we've seen? What is it that you've seen? Have you seen the things that are heavenly and eternal? Have they altered the way that you live your life now? Have you been altered? Have you been changed by this gospel message, this invitation that God has to a heavenly relationship, to an eternal purpose? Have you been altered? Maybe, maybe not. I know that God has been changing, shifting things amongst this community. If you haven't been changed, that's totally all good. It probably just means that you haven't seen. And so this is what God is doing this morning. It says, he talks, um, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So if you feel like you haven't seen the things that are eternal, 
the eternal relationship, the eternal invitation to this marriage, then I ask you, soften your heart to receive the word of God this morning, which the word of God alone is the only thing that will birth a kind of faith and sight within your spirit that will alter and set in motion everything else in life. So back to our question. What was it about this offering made by Abel that was acceptable and by Cain that wasn't acceptable? Well, we've just got the answer. By faith, by Abel's ability to see and enter into that which was unseen. He had received the living word. He had received the invitation of this relationship with God this eternal purpose, this invitation to be his bride. And it is by that faith that he was naturally, instinctively, without even thinking, able to offer up to God an acceptable sacrifice. You know, it's interesting. There was absolutely no commandment whatsoever given by God for a sacrifice. He didn't ask for it. He didn't command it. There was no law. There was no regulation that said, Guys, come on, give me an offering. I'm hungry, I need... No, God doesn't need anything. But yet, in the midst of this, with no commandment, no expectation, no pressure put on by God or by anyone else, naturally, Abel offered up a sacrifice that was acceptable. He behaved in a certain way. He, from his sight, from what he had entered into, from the things unseen... He intrinsically, and because of his relationship, offered something that was going to bless the heart of God. It's by faith we understand, by the ability to see what is unseen. So let's go and have a look at this passage now that you've had the answer. Let that answer ring in the back of your mind as we go through and look at these scriptures. All right. So let's start at verse 3. It came about over the course of time. Let me just come back here. So it came about in the course of time that came brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. What a way to start. It came about over the course of time. It naturally came about. It came about in the midst of daily life. Did you know that it is in the daily things of life that this, that this gospel, that this relationship with Christ is played out? Did you know that daily life has everything in it to prepare you for this eternal calling that God has for us? You don't need anything else. 
It says that by faith the worlds were prepared for the sake of us as his body coming into this relationship with God. You don't need to become a pastor. You don't need to become an elder, a preacher. Uh, Daily life is enough to prepare you for the invitation that God has. It came about in the course of time. It was naturally exposed. So point number one, the way that you live will always be in accordance to the sight and the faith that you have. The sight and the perspective that you have of God will always define the ins and outs of daily life. And that is the very place that God uses through relationships, through marriage, through children, to form and fashion and prepare us for what he has for us. Verse 4. Oh, let's, keep ten, let's continue reading. So, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering for the, uh, to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flocks and of their fat portions. So we've seen in Hebrews 11 this end goal, this answer. So Abel brought the firstlings of his flocks and his fat portions. Point number two, the offerings of God are birthed out of a faith that God gives. Abel was responding to the faith that he had received He wasn't offering up a sacrifice. He was simply responding to the sight that he had. This really isn't about what he gave up at all. It was actually highlighting what he had received from God. In Acts... Paul is talking with these what they call religious people on Mars Hill. And he says to them this, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands, or made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. He didn't need Abel's sacrifice. What he was pleased by was this posture of heart that was submitted and surrendered to him. This love relationship which went beyond the offering, beyond the sacrifice. We see this in our marriage that, so for example, if say for Tessa's birthday, I, I was thinking, well, what, sh- what should I give her? Oh, I'll give her some money. $20 and a nice card. What a great idea for a gift. <laughs> she can buy her own present. <laughs> Tess isn't blessed by my money. Well, I'm not blessed by her money. It's her money. God isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything. He doesn't need a sacrifice. And to the, we look at the rich young ruler not too long ago. 
And this rich young ruler, God, you know, there's this encounter where he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, go and give away all of your possessions and you'll have eternal life. What is he talking about here? Was it the possessions? No. There was something in his heartbeat, something of this relational connection that he was looking for. God isn't served by human hands. That should just lift the backpack of pressure off your back. There is absolutely nothing that you need to do to somehow appease God or serve him. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But he loves and enjoys a genuine relational connection with his people. And this is what Abel had. And the light of the fall and a disconnect of a relationship. There was something about him that touched the heart of God and he recognized, you're not looking for my sacrifices at all. It was his love, his devotion towards God, that which stirred within him a genuine connection and love for God that motivated a kind of gift that wasn't actually the gift, it was a love offering. God isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything. As we continue on. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't, even, it doesn't say the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. It said that the Lord had regard for Abel. This should highlight what it is that God is looking for. God did, it says, um, and the Lord had regard for Abel. Abel as a person. So point number three, God is ultimately interested in people and the transformation of his people. Abel is a person. He's interested in you. He's not interested in a sacrifice or an offering that you can bring from your hands. He's interested in you as a person. And our very transformation is that offering, the laying down of our lives, the submission, the surrender of heart to him. That's the offering. It's us. It's not things. So Abel. You know, Jesus talks about Abel as being the first prophet. Talks about the prophets being from Abel to Zechariah. So what is it about this man, this prophetic man, who was a prophet not because he spoke many words. In fact, there's absolutely no record of him speaking a single word. And yet he was a prophet. Can you be a prophet without speaking? What was it about him that made him prophetic? There was something not in his talk, but there was something in who he was, in his character, his act his actions that stemmed from this living relationship, this relational connection that he shared 
with the Lord. And so Abel was a, a type of who we as a church are to be, this prophetic church, this church who would highlight and demonstrate what it means to be relationally connected to God in these end times. There is a desperate need for a demonstration of God on the earth. And we as the church are the only vehicle and vessel that are able to make that demonstration because we're the only ones who have been given the sight and the perspective to enter into this relationship, this eternal call, this eternal purpose and live it out. There's no other way. God does not have any plan B. It's this. It's the church. And so the Lord had regard for Abel. He had regard for who he was before even the sacrifice took place, before he did anything, before he served, before he joined the cafe team. Lord, the Lord had regard for Abel. But yet, don't let it stop there. Don't stop yourself halfway through the verse. I said, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So point number four, it's not just faith, it's faith and works. Wrap your head around that one. God isn't interested in works. God is interested in works. But what kind of works? What motivates the works? Where did the works come from? Did they come from faith? You know, Paul makes this dramatic statement. I think it's Paul. It's that everything that isn't done out of faith is sin. Wow. What's he saying? When you see the light of the gospel in Genesis and what it is that God was looking for and has always been looking for, a people of his own possession, you see that everything that is not birthed out of this faith, this ability to see what it is that God is after, this relational connection, this invitation to an eternal marriage, if it's not birthed out of that What is it? What purpose does it achieve? And that's where you have people like Solomon and Ecclesiastes saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. It's a waste of time. It has no value. When, let me tell you, when you start to capture, when you start to see, when you start to taste this eternal life, this eternal goal, this eternal sight that God has, you'll be saying the same thing, man, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And you'll start to live like that. So you'll start to value relational connection with God above your work, your house, your family, your everything. And like Abel, you won't say a word, and yet you'll end up being persecuted because you rock the apple cart. 
Because you're living for something that is higher, something that's greater, and that is absolutely and totally confronting to all those that you have around you. And that's why it says about this incident with Cain and Abel, it was in the course of time. It was bound to happen. It was always going to happen. That Abel, through making this demonstration, was ultimately going to be killed by not his enemy, not the Muslims or, you know, that we think the enemy are these days, but by his brother, by his flesh and blood, without even saying a word. What a deal. (laughs) It's not just faith, it's faith and works. Faith, the sight, must have an expression in our lives. It must alter us. Or like James says, faith without works is dead. What is he saying? If there's no works, you actually haven't seen. This sight is so motivating. It's so compelling. You have to act. This sight should shift things. It should realign our values, our priorities, our thinking, our time, our commitments. And it does. At the moment, we're going through a transition of government. We've just had elections. And so we've had, you know, obviously nationals going out and Labour's coming in. And so I work at Work and Income as a good public servant. And of course, I won't be giving away any of my political views in public. (laughs) But there's been a transition from the national government to the Labour one. And because as a public servant we administer the policy of the government of the day, we're naturally preempting that there's going to be changes in priorities. There's going to be changes in resourcing. There's going to be changes in commitments. And as public servants, we have to align ourselves to those priorities. And Jesus says to the, to the people of the day when he walked, um, walked the earth, he says, so you're able to discern Morning, evening, the weather, but you can't discern the signs of the times. This change in government, this sight for the government's priorities, their agenda, what it is that they want to achieve, shifts and moves our behavior. I wonder if this heavenly and eternal kingdom has shifted your priorities. Has it shifted your thinking? Has it shifted the things that you invest your time into? Or are your hearts too dull to what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing on the earth in this time? Do you know how to judge the appearance of the sky but don't know how to discern that in this time all of eternity is hinging on your acceptance of the eternal word, the receiving of this faith that would ultimately change and transform your heart, your mind, your life, and this community. Have you received a faith like that? Have you allowed the kingdom of God to change and transform you? 
Because let me tell you, you only have a certain amount of breaths to breathe. And it is absolutely worth making sure that they count. Sorry, I'm not trying to be a scaremonger. (laughs) I'm trying to bring to light the weight. Because would would you not rather hear this now? Would you not rather be confronted by the eternal plan and enter into it? Would you not rather receive the gospel now and allow it to do this eternal work within you? Absolutely. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity except what it is that God is doing. You know, Jesus came up against this time and time again in his ministry. In this moment where Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who had come to rescue and reconcile mankind back to himself, he's handed over to his own people and the authorities of the day, and they crucify him. They don't want him as their king. And so while he's hanging there naked on the cross, dying a humiliating death, the people around him are casting lots for his clothing. Casting lots for his clothing. That in this moment, that eternity is hanging on the line. The the single most significant event of human history, the thing that would give us access into this eternal purpose of God, as this is going on, the most significant event in all of human history, the people are standing around around the cross casting lots, gambling for the clothes on his back. What is this? No faith, no ability to see the things that were unseen and eternal. They had a greater value for his clothes than they did for his eternal sacrifice. Do we? Do we place a greater value on the things that are heavenly and eternal than we do the things that are temporary and passing? Because this isn't about clothes. This is about our hearts. It could be anything. It could be a greater value for our house, for our kids, for our work, for meeting our KPIs. It could be a greater value for anything. And like Solomon is saying, don't, man, don't invest your life into those things. Don't, don't gamble Why are you gambling your life? Don't throw it away. Don't value this above this. But they could not see. They didn't have this faith that would set them free from the things that were earthly, temporary, passing. What is it that Paul says? So we set our eyes on the things, not that are seen, but the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are temporary, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Have you set your mind on the things that are unseen? Have you? As you're drifting off to sleep at night, do you, are you meditating? Is your mind full of the things that are heavenly, eternal? Are you enjoying this relational connection with your Father? When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up alive to God, dead to sin, dead to living for the things that are meaningless, worthless, and alive to, in this relational connection with God our Father? Let's be honest, it has to be real. If there's no genuine relational connection, then you probably are gambling your life. You're probably casting lots for his clothes as opposed to participating and enjoying living from, eating of this eternal life that he's invited us into. You know, I feel like I've seen this time and time again in my life and the relationships that I've had around me. And I've shared bits and pieces before, but a number of years back, um, we had a, a homeless guy that came to stay at our, with us in our flat. And my, me and my naive <laughs> uh, thinking thought that I could invite him in and offer him a better life than what he was living. And so what was on offer was this opportunity to walk together, to be part of his life, to teach him how to cook, to teach him what it means to, to live and get a job, all these kind of things. And it was all very well and good. And he was, yes, yes, I, I want that. I want that opportunity. And so I found a new flat, moved out of the, the current flat to, to um, you know, get this place for us and him to live together, and he lasted one night. <laughs> so I had this three-bedroom house all to myself. <laughs> um, and yet in this time, in these last days that I spent with him, what he was most concerned about was whether he was going to take my backpack with him. <laughs> a backpack? In exchange for the opportunity to be invested in, to enter into a life that was so much bigger and greater than what he knew. What an exchange. What an exchange. I wonder if we're living like that. Are we fixated on something that is temporary, is passing, as opposed to the eternal opportunity that we have in Christ. Get back to these scriptures. Verse 8, And it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We've probably touched a little bit on this already. Point number five. Sorry, I probably missed the other points. Oh, no, that's all right. Point number five, to live in this way will, will naturally invoke persecution. It came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So you might not be physically killed by your brothers and sisters, but if you're not living from faith, if you're living out from your flesh and you encounter someone who lives from this eternal place, you will naturally not like it. 
And while you might not physically kill them, you'll certainly talk about them behind your back, behind their backs. You'll certainly talk to people how they're lofty. They, you won't agree with their lifestyle. They'll confuse you. They'll be confronting. This is a natural fleshly response to encountering a man that is full with the gospel, a man that lives for the things of heaven and for eternity. Might just speed it up a little bit. Verse 9. Sorry, let me just flick back here. All right. So then, all right, let's say read from verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What an interesting little encounter. So Cain has just killed his brother Abel. And then we hear this, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? What a question that the Lord would ask. The Lord, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, what on earth have you done? <laughs> he says, where's your brother? You see, in that moment, God sees beyond the murder. He says, where's your brother? And Abel says to him, am I my brother's keeper? Should I be responsible for my brother? Should I be actively involved in his life? Should I know his whereabouts all the time? Um, yes, you should. It's almost like God isn't too concerned with the murder. He's concerned about the relational connection. Where is your brother? When we look back into the garden with Adam and Eve, what was the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve once this this connection has happened. The severing, he says, where are you? Am I, is there, am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Because this faith, this sight of the things that are unseen, this eternal purpose is not Limited to just you and your life. We've heard this morning that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Is a nation comprised of one person? No. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a, pe a people, not a person, a people of his own possession. Are you your brother's keeper? He says to Cain, am I my brother's keeper? I wonder how we see this relationship with one another. 
Do we see this faith, this eternal call, this goal, this invitation as being individual or collective? Because if we see it as being individual, we might end up operating like Cain. Paul says be careful with the freedom that you have, that you don't bite and devour one another. If this thing was individual, no, my work is individual. If I meet my KPIs, I look better than my workmates. If they do badly, it makes me look better. Let's be honest. If I do worse, it makes them look better. That's the way that the world rolls. And yet, God says, where is your brother? Are we our brother's keeper? Do we see this invitation? Has faith stirred in us? Has the eternal purpose confronted and changed us to such an extent that we see our brother's life as valuable and as important as our own? Because that is what it will do. If we haven't, that's when persecution, that's when the bitterness, that's when the talking behind the back, that's when the disconnection happens amongst the body. But if we see with faith the things that are heavenly and eternal, the things that would bless God's heart, the things that are on his agenda, the things that are his priority, his people, his bride, coming to be mature here on the earth, then we will absolutely be our brother's keeper. We'll be concerned. We'll be invested. We'll be friends with them. We'll enjoy their company. We'll invite them over for dinner. We'll ask them how they're doing. And so that this faith, this sight, this eternal goal is not for one of us. This is for all of us. And as a church, this is what we are entering into. This quality of relationship where we would be our brother's keeper.